Hello and welcome to the Adventure Games Podcast. My name is Shorsha Dunbar and I'm your host. Welcome to the Adventure Games Podcast. I hope everybody is well. Now, as some of you may know, I may have mentioned once or twice, I may have posted one or two photos uh, on our social media channels uh, of myself in uh, Dubrovnik. Uh, I was there, and there there was a reason I was there, and it wasn't just because I was uh, lazing about under the sun visiting beautiful Dubrovnik. I was actually there on work for the podcast. And uh, so myself and Tony Warriner, co-founder of Revolution, were invited to Reboot Develop Blue Conference. And we spoke about the fall and rise of adventure games. Uh, now, we had a great chat. And um, this was also the very first episode of the podcast that was recorded live in front of a, well, live audience. Now, unfortunately, we couldn't get the full video. This wasn't recorded because there was a lot of talks going on there. But we do have some snippets of the video. I do have photos that I put on the social media, on an Instagram channel. Uh, you can get the links in the show notes uh, and uh, to our YouTube channel as well. Uh, but this is the full audio of my conversation with Tony Warner. It was a fascinating conversation. He has some fascinating anecdotes about what it was like uh, co-founding Revolution and then how they dealt with the differing states of the genre. Um, and uh, you can also check out his book as well, Revolution, uh, The Quest for Game Development Greatness as well, which so far at time recording is still available on his website. Uh, there are also some, uh, some familiar voices that you might recognize uh, in the second half of our conversation. So without further ado, here is the main event, the main reason I was in Dubrovnik, my conversation with Tony Warner about the fall and rise of adventure games. Please enjoy. Hello, everybody. Thank you all for joining us for this discussion on the fall and rise of adventure games. I think I got that right. <laughs> That's the right one. <laughs> uh, so there won't be any PowerPoint for this one. It's just a beachside chat. Um, and who better to discuss the fall and rise of adventure games uh, than with Tony Warner. Uh, so now we're just going to read out some introductions for each other. Um, so sure you all probably know who he is, but um, Tony Warner is a veteran game designer and developer with a wealth of experience in the industry. Tony's career spans over three decades, during which he has contributed to some of the most iconic video game titles in history. So he's probably best known for his work on the acclaimed Broken Sword series, uh, which has sold millions of copies worldwide, I believe, and received numerous awards. He co-founded Revolution, uh, the studio behind Broken Sword in 1990, and served as creative director until 2010. In addition to his work on Broken Sword, Tony has also worked on other notable titles such as Lures of Temptress, Beneath the Steel Sky, and In Cold Blood. His contribution to the adventure game genre has earned him a reputation as one of the most influential and respected figures in the industry. So please join us in welcoming Tony Warner to the stage for what promises to be a fascinating and insightful discussion. So, Shorter Dunbar is an accomplished and passionate host of Adventure Games podcast. With a deep love for all things adventure and gaming, Shorter has become a leading voice in the gaming community. His expertise and knowledge of the latest trends and developments in the gaming industry have made him a go-to source for anyone looking to stay up to date. Shorter's natural charisma and ability to connect with his audience earned him a dedicated following of gamers and adventure seekers alike. He brings a unique perspective to every episode of the Adventure Games podcast, providing insightful analysis and thoughtful commentary on the latest games and trends. With his infectious enthusiasm and wealth of knowledge, Shorsha Dunbar is a true asset to the gaming community. So 
So that's the chat GDP. <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, confession. Uh, we didn't write either of those introductions. Uh, we just got them from ChatGBT. Um, and we might be talking more about that uh, toward the end of this interview, um, if we have time. Uh, so, yeah, so the first thing I wanted to ask you, uh, Tony, after those long introductions. <laughs> um, so before you founded Revolution, um, adventure games were, you know, text adventures before graphics came along. Uh, so were you a fan of text adventures? Uh, did you play any text adventures before you co-founded Revolution? Yes, I mean, uh, in the 80s, it was, it was uh, I'm sure you all remember the 80s, right? <laughs> 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 so the eighties were, uh, uh, it was, it, you know, no internet, uh, no mobile phones, uh, but there were there were adventure games and there were pure text, and then, which which was a, a pretty good thing. It's a very pure genre, uh, text-based, very sophisticated, really, for what they were. Um, later on, you had they started putting little pictures on them, so it was, uh, you know they they became slightly graphical. Um, uh, but you know the amazing thing was you could you could one 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 week to the next the, you know top of the charts could be uh, an adventure game and it would be it would be a real adventure game you know they they throw that that, that tag around everywhere I mean probably Candy Crush has got <laughs> adventure tagged onto it but um, in those days it was real you know yeah no these days almost anything can be an adventure game so yeah so text adventures were as you mentioned really popular then. Then, uh, well, Sierra and LucasArts came along and they made, well, Sierra made some very uh, popular adventure games. They were probably at the top of the line, shall we say, with King's Quest, Leisure Suit Larry, and uh, LucasArts then had, well, in the 1980s, late 1980s, Maniac Mansion, um, and Zach McCracken. And then you guys came along, and you as well as Charles and Noreen, who are in the audience, so you co-founded Revolution, uh, and you released uh, Lure of the Temptress and Beneath Steel Sky. Were you a fan of uh, those other adventure games that, uh, that I mentioned then? Were you aware of the whole landscape? Uh, were you playing adventure games when you founded or co-founded Revolution? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, was, it was a good genre. We, we, we all played them. Um, you know, it was a big thing. Uh, you know, Charles and Noreen were, were involved with um, Sierra Online, so they knew, um, they knew the market very well. Uh, and, and Charles had written um, the 2D adventures for, you know, not 2D, text adventures mm. for um, Spectrum in his early earlier time at Arctic Computing. So, um, you know, I was a player. Charles was a writer uh, of those games, and uh, it just seemed like a, and they and they had from Activision they had this um, deep knowledge of the market. So, um, you know, when Charles went back into development, it, it seemed like a very natural fit to um, to do an adventure game. Yeah. Um, well, Lure of the Temptress was a fantasy, medieval fantasy. There are some, you know, similar aspects to King's Quest, but you know, this game had a sense of humor. So. Um, and you designed, I believe, a virtual theater for um, Lord of the Temptress, which was back in those days, anyway. Excuse the pun, but revolutionary. So, um, yeah, what can you tell us about that then? How did that kind of make you guys, you know, kind of go up to the top of the pile then as well? Well, I mean, we 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 kind of followed what everyone had to do in those days, which is to try and find some innovation, you know. Uh, you know, every game it seemed that came out, it, it did something different from, or is expected to do something different from every other game. So, you know, we, we looked at um, literally Larry basically, and we said, what can we do to um, to, to push the genre? You know, and when we just had this idea of, um, you know, most games were like, here's a screen, and, and then you, you complete it, and you move on to the next one, and you move on to the next one, and, and that's your, you know, very linear progression through the game. We, we thought we could do something different, which was to, to have these characters that were fully independent and, and walked around the whole world and lived out of the lives, you know. And that was our innovation, that's what we thought we would add to, to the genre, you know. Yeah, and you used the same then for Beneath the Steel Sky, which was released in 1994. Uh, did you make any modifications to the virtual theatre then? Not really. I mean, we were, in truth, we were having difficulty with it because it was clashing, I mean, it was good technology, but it was clashing slightly with the, with the kind of games we wanted to write and the kind of content. So we, we weren't finding ways to use it as much as we should. So I mean, there was a lot of it in, 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 in Little Temptress, slightly less in, in, in New Steel Sky. I mean, it was still there, but it was it was already taking back seat slightly. 
I mean, when I was when I was um, writing about this stuff recently, um, I, I looked at the, the temptress and, and what it was doing. I mean, you know, at the time we were very proud of it, um, but I suddenly realised that we could have faked the whole thing, <laughs> and it would have been easier. Well, I think uh, from what I remember when I played Beneath the Steel Sky, the virtual theatre was, you know, focused. I remember there was I think, a puzzle involving one of the characters, Lamb, that I think you have to get him to go, I think, downstairs, and then you have to mess around with his uh, card, I think, that he can't come back up or something. And that would be, you could do that because he had his own schedule, his own life that he could, he could walk around himself without being controlled by a character. Mm. Um, so, so I think, it, in my opinion, that it worked well that way. Yeah, but we, you know, we, it, it was it was a difficult fit because we were looking for mm. puzzles to, to use that system, and uh, and that, I mean, that's probably the best one in that game. Uh, you know, it really he really was walking around, and he, he really did block his access, and he really couldn't get back yeah. using the lift. But it would have been so easy just to just <laughs> make that happen anyway. So uh, you know, it was, all the tech was there, but it, it, it wasn't quite right for adventures. Um, and then we used it, and, and we did some interesting things with it, but. Uh, it, it was an innovation too far in a way. Did, did any other adventures, uh, final question of virtual theatre, um, oh, sorry, um, did any other adventure games at the time use virtual theatre or anything like it that you're aware of? Well, uh, yeah, I mean there was a company, a UK company called Level 9 who wrote some really good um, uh, text adventures and I think they were looking at doing a similar thing. We, you know, Charles and I, we saw, didn't we, uh, in, in London, yeah, there was a game called Raj, which which they were doing a similar thing. You know, the characters were walking around, and, and it seemed like, you know, this is this is the next thing for adventures, and, and uh, we should go that way. I mean, they I don't think they even finished that game uh, before before they kind of do dropped out of the, the adventure world. Um, so it, you know, yeah, but, and then after the release of Beneath the Steel Sky. Uh, back to the whole landscape of the genre, so LucasArts had released, uh, I think, well, two Monkey Island games at the time, which, again, you know, were, became really, really popular. Uh, Sierra released Gabriel Knight, um, which there are some similarities to Broken Sword, but it's more of a horror take, a supernatural take, uh, than, you know, the globe-trotting mystery adventure. Um, have you guys been playing any of those games? Yeah, we were looking, we were very focused on um, what LucasArts were doing. And we, we played Monkey Island, and we, you know we had that on, on the screen in the office, and that was who we were trying to compete with. Um, we we didn't look at Gabriel Knight particularly. Uh, I'm told it's got a lot of similarities, but we never we never really focused on that one. Uh, it was all LucasArts for us. Okay, uh, so then after Beneath the Steel Sky, so Adventure Games was still very popular, and then you guys released probably what I mentioned before, Broken Sword, which is probably what you're best known for. Uh, Broken Sword, Shadow of the Templars, and Broken Sword, Smoking Mirror the following year. Um, <coughs> first of all, I believe, did you make Broken Sword 2 in one year? <laughs> we did do it in one year, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean the first one was only only two years, I think. Uh, which, which And it's a massive game, the first one. It's it is a massive game, and, and you know, you look at it now, and uh, I, mean, I mean, at the time, they were, the publisher were complaining, they were going, this is going on too long, it's taking too much time, too much money. But no, you look at it now, in about two years, it's just like... <laughs> Fair enough, you know. And it's also okay. non-linear, I believe. You can go to Syria, Spain, Ireland. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's got some branching in the middle. I mean, it's, mm. it's very complicated, it's Broken Sword. Hugely safe. Yeah. I'm sure people here are aware of Broken Sword. I'm sure they've probably played it. Uh, but when you were making Broken Sword, did you have any idea that it would go on to be as big of a hit as it turned out to be? Uh, Not really. I mean, the, 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 the commercial idea behind it was that um, the, the publisher version interacted they, they wanted to throw everything at, um, at, at the adventure genre and see what, see what would come out of it, really. I mean, it was meant to be good. It was meant to be big and fresh, and, 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 uh, and, and it was. But we, we, I mean, it's very difficult to judge your own game. Is it, is it going to be a big hit? I mean, we thought it would, it would do okay, and, and that it would just be another game. I mean, from, from the 8-bit days, you know, a game would come out and set. It was going to the shops. It would live for three months. Then it might go to budget for a while. And then, you know, off the shelves, that's the end of it, forgotten, and you move on to the next one. I mean, we really thought Broken Sword would be dead and buried within a year, you know, because that's, that's just the way it was. No, no one thought, like, nearly 30 years later, people would be talking on stage about Broken Sword. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's unthinkable. unthinkable. They would have one of the lead developers of Broken Sword still talking about it, and 
still around. Yeah, it's, uh, it's more popular than ever now. <laughs> um, but so that's all the good things. That was kind of the, the rise, first of all. So the venture games were at the top of their game and selling well. But I believe there was a changing landscape. There was change in the air then for adventure games. Uh, was there anything that happened in particular around the release of Broken Sword 1 and 2 that kind of changed the landscape? I think um, I mean, it, it, it was like a slow motion, uh, uh, an, an asteroid coming in, and the, and the, the asteroid was, was the PlayStation, in, mm. in PSX they called it. Uh, and it, it was slowly coming, and uh, it, it, it brought in so many changes. Uh, and uh, hits like um, Tomb Raider and Resident Evil and you know, Metal Gear Solid and, and this, these games and these new genres, and it, it, it blew everything apart. And for adventure games at, at the time, it was pretty much the end, you know? Yeah, so it's, you know, these really fancy adventure, or well not adventure games, fancy games, as you mentioned, with very fancy 3D graphics, and there seemed to be really obsession by people and publishers to make everything 3D and add action and everything. But I think it kind of Broken Sword was released on PS1, wasn't it? Broken Sword 1 and 2, and they became very popular on, on the PS1, didn't they? They were, but it was, it was an afterthought, you know. I mean, mm. uh, Virgin Interactive, they, they weren't that interested in the PSX. I mean, they saw it, I think they saw it as a threat to their publisher model because Sony was so um, controlling of, of, the, of, the, of the content and what could be published and what, what couldn't, you know. Uh, and I think uh, Virgin at the time, they were like, Okay, you guys, you, you know, you can do a port, um, and, and certainly we're not not that excited. I mean, it was it was done very cheaply, very very fast, and it was, but then it was some free content for the market. You know, um, we didn't take it seriously particularly either. We didn't think you know they told us it would sell you know a few copies, and we just did a very a very quick port. You know, uh, but it but it actually sold a huge amount, um, which was surprising. Yeah, considering that PlayStation 1 at the time had Resident Evil and had uh, Tomb Raider and had uh, Final Fantasy 7, which came out in 1997, I believe. Uh, but then you had Revolution then released in 2000 in Cold Blood. Uh, the interesting thing about this is it was more of an action and stealth game. There were action and stealth elements anyway. Uh, so my question is, um, wh why did you guys release an action and stealth game? Because well, you're known as the adventure game guys. And, well, what are the reaction from fans of the previous games? Well, I suppose the, th the thing is, um, you know, the survival competitors and you know, the LucasArts and Sierras, at this point, they'd already been mm. blown apart, you know, they were gone in, in effect. And Revolution is very tenacious, you know, we, we never wanted to give up. So we, 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 we kind of buckled and, and supposedly did what the publishers wanted us to do. And Sony kind of said, oh, you know, we love Revolution. Do, do a great story, do great characters, but do something different, you know. And, and we, by the way, we really like Metal Gear Solid. Um, so, <laughs> so we, we the, the, they said right stealth game. So, I mean, the most stealthy thing was us trying to squeeze an adventure game into, into this Metal Gear Solid type thing. Um, so it's kind of a bit schizophrenic, the whole game, because it's action and stealth on one hand, and, uh, and, and a typical revolution adventure sort of. Into the bottom, you know. So it's kind of two games. Well, it's, two, it's, yeah, two. it's two games. It's two games in one. Yeah, as a as a player, it was very interesting because I do you know I didn't use the internet that much back then, and I just played Broken Sword one and two, and then Lewis Tempers and Beneath the Steel Sky, and then I bought In Cold Blood, and I thought, oh, this is another adventure game, and I believe in the first scene, uh, there's a robot, and I just took my time. I believe I was going to click on the robot, and then the robot shot me. And it killed me. <laughs> so that was quite a surprise. So but, sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, but, but then, you know, as you said, the story itself was very interesting um, in the game as well. Um, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah that is a good game. It is a great adventure game. Yeah. Um, but I, I suppose because, uh, speaking of Sierra and LucasArts, um, before Sierra went under, uh, everyone went 3D, but they tried to make 3D adventure games. So Gabriel Knight. 3 became 3D, uh, that even back then didn't look good, mm. uh, then LucasArts released Escape from Monkey Island, and before that Grim Fandango, which is considered to be one of the best adventure games of all time, but at the time it had, you know, not great UI, not great interface. Um, and so then, uh, well, Sierra just went under completely, um, that's a whole other story, um, when Ken Whitton decided to sell the company and 
well, I'm sure a lot of people know what happened, that the people who bought the company ended up being crooks and ended up in prison, and everyone lost their jobs at the company, and LucasArts cancelled Full Throttle 2 and Simon Max Freelance Police. So we all thought it nearly the end of the adventure game genre, but I believe Revolution went back to adventure games when you made Broken Sword 3, The Sleeping Dragon, um, which was released in 2003. So um, I'm curious, what was the mood like at, at uh, Revolution? You know, were you confident that Broken Sword 3 could do well? Did you feel under any pressure that you had to maybe quote unquote save the adventure genre? Well, we were always trying to save the adventure genre. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess we were we were quite excited to, to do another Broken Sword. You know. Yeah. The one that they were saying, oh, it must be three D, it must be three D. So you know, okay, we accept that. Um, and you need, you know, you need a new UI and all that kind of thing, which was the big challenge for adventures. But um, you know, we were happy because it was, a, it was, it was broken sword again. Mm. So it, it was another chance to try and um, not be quite so stealthy and, and, and do do what we wanted to do. You know, but it was on a, the thing was it was on a very tight budget. So you know, the, the problem with three D is it, it takes huge amounts of money. It's just a money sink. So. Where's the attention going to go? And you always have to put a box into the free game. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I know that there was you know certainly fans of Broken Sword one and two at the time that were kind of up in arms, you know, because as we mentioned here, LucasArts games went 3D, then Broken Sword 3D. I never personally minded it. I liked the graphics, um, but that was released, and then uh, the whole landscape for adventure games. Uh, probably between 2003 and 2009 or 2010, uh, probably was like the wilderness years. Um, yeah, now, I do need to stress there were adventure games still being made. Uh, Dave Gilbert was making adventure games yeah. within the audience, and there were several other adventure games, Siberia 1 and 2, Runaway, and several other games, and they are quite good. But I think it's safe to say that they weren't really mainstream as they were. Um, what was happening with Revolution then at the time? Yeah, and it was, it was a very niche genre hanging on. The problem for Revolution was we, we'd done some big games. Uh, mm. So, you know, did we want to go down and do really, really small games? Was, or do we try and do what the publishers wanted us to do, you know, which was big, big 3D type things? Um, you know, we, we, we kind of got knocked around this way and that by, by publisher deals that didn't come off. And, uh, you know, it, eventually we, we ended up with almost nothing. You know, it was down to literally the shell of the company. And, mm. you know, uh, there was no office. And, uh, you know, me and Charles would go for a walk and, and think how we finished, you know, is it, is it the end for us, you know. But we never let it die, and we never let the company die. But did you think at that time when you were going for walks with Charles that you would ever get to make a new adventure game? We probably didn't, <laughs> yes. We thought, it was, we thought we were pretty much done, but we, did, we didn't know, but we, you know, we never gave up, but we thought we were done for, yeah. Yeah, and what's interesting is that in AAA games, there was a lot of uh, multiplayer games, but in the few single-player games, they were kind of had some adventure game elements. Uh, well, this is the thing, I mean, I mean adventure games, it was like a corpse, and, and other genres were just picking things out of it, you know, it's a, you know characterization of puzzles and, and stories and stuff. I mean, everyone picked those books <laughs> and stole things from us, but, um, you know, we were left, we were the corpse. Well, uh, well, at the time as well, because there was kind of another change, because at the those years during the wilderness, uh, the mobile gaming market was beginning to take off. I believe it was Candy Crush and, I don't know, Farmville, you know, games like that. Uh, and I believe you were working on, what well, around the time of Broken Sword 3, uh, Broken Sword, uh, the GBA version you were working on? Yeah, this was the interesting thing. I mean, we, got, we got asked to do GBA, and um, it, it was exciting because we got a chance to, to write, uh, you know, our people slate of PSX came was not to try and do a, a unique um, special UI for it that works well on console. You know, we just emulated the mouse, which wasn't um, particularly particularly clever. Um, GBA was a chance to, to invent a UI for, for adventure games that really worked, and I think we cracked it. And, um, In the GBA, yeah. On the GBA, yeah. I mean, we did a we did a really good job with that. Now it didn't go any further because uh, you know, our publisher did what publishers usually do and went spectacularly bust and um, took. took took down Broken Sword 2 with it, um, and, and that, that seemed like the end of that particular, you know, it looked like a pathway out, and uh, it, won't be, it kind of wasn't. Yeah, so, so did you think this was the end of mobile gaming or adventure games on mobile or handheld? Uh, it kind of looked like there was something there, but the, 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 the Nintendo, the, the, 
the Nintendo Path maybe not not maybe it wasn't quite going to be big enough for us. You know, mm. I mean the cartridge was a big problem and the costs and uh, you know you couldn't just do what you wanted on GBA. That was the thing. Um, and then I think a sh- couple of years after um, you, you released uh, well, Revolution released uh, was it Broken Sword Director's Cut? Um, yeah, I mean right at the bottom when there was nothing, um, Ubisoft came along and said, hey, you know, how about um, how about a, a DS version, which looked pretty interesting. So we kind of dusted off our GBA game and uh, and um, kind of said two screens. You know, how's that? How's that going to work? Um, but you know, we, we did the director's cut on the on the DS, and, and you know, it's, it's pretty decent. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because well, I played, again, Broken Sword, uh, this uh, director's cut on the Nintendo DS, but I didn't know it was taken from the GBA version. I thought it was taken from the PC version when I played it. This, this is the thing, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, a lot of people thought that. We're, we're always getting in trouble for cutting the, uh, <laughs> for cutting the, the original game down and, and for the director's cut, whereas in, in fact it came from the GBA game because we'd lost the code base for the original game. We couldn't rebuild it because so, we were good at archiving. <laughs> you know, we, we really weren't really good at our So uh, we, what we still had was the GBA game, and uh, so that became the DS. I mean, the DS wasn't all that good anyway, so you know, it, it was absolutely logical to, um, to to build up the GBA game rather than you know we would have had to cut down. The, if we'd gone back to the original game, which was huge, we would have had to chop it to bits to get it into the DS. So it made total sense to um, to, to take it from the yep. GBA. I mean, on second thought, it does. <laughs> when I think about it, it's, uh, it was the only way. Yeah. So it makes sense. And and then uh, was it shortly afterwards that uh, you were made an offer? Or Revolution made an offer to release? Was it Beneath the Sky on iPhone? Well, that was the other great thing. Yeah. I mean, if if Nintendo was it looked like a route out, but wasn't. Um, but then we, you know we got a call from Apple, and they said we've got this thing called the iPhone, and we'd, we'd love to see um, Brett Sword on it. Uh, and they actually came. They actually came to see us. You can imagine that, you know. Uh, they, they came all the way to York and said, uh, you know, we've got some phones, great. And then we, we all had crappy Nokia type things and just sort of give them away. And so, Those Nokia uh, phones. <laughs> uh, I think it, maybe I had a Toshiba or something. I can't remember. Maybe a Nokia. Yeah, yeah, I think I had a Nokia thing, but you know, it was never going to play Brandy Sword. Uh, <laughs> but they came up and said, uh, yeah, it's going to be huge, it's going to be massive. And, and we kind of thought, Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. You know, Steve Jobs is pretty cool. You know, maybe maybe it's going to work. So, uh, but they, but then you know they wanted Brett Sword, and it, it was never going to fit in. At the time, you had like sixteen names or something like that for the for the game. So we did we did Beneath Steel Sky, and uh, it did pretty well. Yeah, and then after Beneath Steel Sky, did you then make Broken Sword for iPhone? Yeah, we just it was going so well that we just carried straight on. So we, we took that DS game. Director's cut and we put it on the on the iPhone. And by this time we had a really good UI for the touch. And we mm. really, you know, we, we were so stunned by by failing on the PSX um, for it and sort that you know we put huge amounts of work into into the into the UIs and we did a really good job on the um, on, on the on, on the iPhone touch mm. touch UI. You know, I mean, it works brilliantly. Yeah, because around that time as well, it was probably the time of the remaster. There was the Monkey Island one and two special editions. Uh, Telltale were begin well. They have been formed a few years previously, and they're beginning to gain more popularity. Uh, they made Tales of Monkey Island, so there was kind of a glimmer of hope for the adventure game genre and for Revolution at, around the same time. Um, and then, uh, well, you mentioned an asteroid that had like slow motion kind of. I would say that uh, Tim Schafer kind of threw a grenade <laughs> into the mix with his Kickstarter video, and I would say probably unintentionally <laughs> reignited the adventure game genre. He said he wanted to go back to make um, a point-and-click adventure game for 400000 He ended up getting $3.3 million on Kickstarter, and uh, then Broken Sword 5 came along on Kickstarter. So what can you tell me about that? Were you thinking of making Broken Sword before that, or did the idea come from Tim Schafer? Well, we, we, did, we did obviously those three games on iPhone, and... Um you know they were they were doing so well that we were, we were starting to think maybe we can make a new game. You know, so we, we had enough revenue to almost do a, do a quite a nice demo, and, and we didn't have a, we weren't rich enough to do a whole new Broken Sword game, but we, we kind of thought we were moving towards it. You know, um, so you know we we were talking about crowdfunding and not really sure. And then just and, you know the, the double fine thing just hit, and, and like a week later we were 
we would definitely go in that way, you know. It made it, I mean, it was just, it was just a huge eye-opener. Mm. Yeah, because Broken Sword 5 then was a you know, very nice video with Charles as well, speaking to George Stobart and Nico from what I remember, and you made a goal and released the, released the game, and then generally there was uh, a lot of you know, adventure game developers from Sierra in particular came back to Kickstarter, um, and it seemed like the adventure game genre was on the rise then, which, which it was. Um, why do you think that the adventure game genre has risen again? What do you think it is about uh, adventure games that found popularity again that people liked about them? I mean, I think it shouldn't ever, ever really have died. And uh, it, was just, it was just market forces and uh, people like, um, you, you know, magazines and stuff that were, that were obsessed with 3D. And you know, there, was, there was so much advance in 3D technology that, that it was like, that's the only thing you could do. And I think it's eventually got to the point, or no, it has got to a point now where people don't really care about that. I think they're looking for authenticity and they're looking for stories and they're looking for characters. And uh, you know, if, if you're thinking of those things, then adventure is the perfect genre. You know, it, it's where it always was. You know, all all, all the good adventure game is is, is story and characters. So um, you know, if, if that's the important thing in a the game, then, then adventure is the, the place to be. You know. Yeah, definitely. I think one other reason that uh, adventure game genre became popular and also Broken Sword, I believe, has you know, regained some popularity maybe, a little bit of uh, nostalgia. Now, kind of mixed feelings about nostalgia. I think it's obviously good, but I think there might be an over-reliance from current adventure game developers, especially a lot of them, on nostalgia. You know, if they say, we're making the next Broken Sword, the next Monkey Island, and my initial reaction is, no, you're not. It's try and make your own game first. You can be inspired by these games. Um, you know, but try and concentrate on making your game as good as possible. Um, but what, what are your opinions, as one of the lead designers of Broken Sword, what are your opinions when you see other developers say, yeah, we want to make you know, a game like Broken Sword? I mean, it's great. I mean, sure it is for you. <laughs> I mean, I think nostalgia's good. It's kept the genre alive for, for two decades, you know. Mm -hmm. I think now people will be confident enough to, to try and do their own things. Um, you know, I think what Dave Gilbert is doing is, is, is brilliant and it's, it's exactly the right thing. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> We're not saying that because you're here, Dave. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I, mean, I, I played Fox Barrow and I was like, this is perfect. I mean, it's exactly what people should be doing. They, they, they've, not, they've not gone crazy on graphics. I mean, they're nice, but it's not, it's not the whole thing. Uh, and the, the story and the, and the characters is where they've put the effort. And um, I mean, that's exactly, it's exactly the right thing to do. Yeah, uh, and so where do you see the the future of adventure games? So we used ChatGPT for our introductions, so that's all ChatGPT, it wasn't us. Uh, where do you see maybe AI in adventure games uh, in the future? Do you think that will be used more in adventure games in particular, you know, for the story or for dialogue or voice acting? And what are your thoughts on it? Uh, I kind of hope not. Um, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a big fan. Uh, I must say. I mean, when, when uh, a few a few months ago, when when all that, that art stuff, you know, you could you could say draw a picture of a camel on the motorway and it would it would do it and, and like everyone was going. Well, that's 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 both amazing and, and scary at the same time. I mean, my wife who's an artist, she was like up in arms. She was saying it's going to kill us all. We're all going to we're all going to be homeless, you know, because AI is going to draw all the graphics. And uh, we were like. Yeah, this is terrible. This is terrible. Uh, and now, like six months later, she's she's using it to. She's got a notion, and she's it's like saying she asks it questions like what she should do, and, and like it's telling her, and she's going, oh, this is actually really good, you know. <laughs> <laughs> she just asked me to correct her correct her English and stuff, and she doesn't do it. Anymore. She goes, <laughs> she goes to to do it. So, uh, I mean, this stuff's coming, and uh, mm. you know, remember this year because it's the year that everything changed. Um, AI is is not going to go away. Is it is it gonna actually be inserted into adventure games? I don't think so yet. I mean, use it as a tool for, for designing and getting ideas and things, but like, I don't see it inside games. Not yeah. Yet. Yeah. I mean, ChatGPT is very interesting because if you put write um, a plot for an adventure game similar to Broken Sword or Monkey Island, and it will come up with an entire plot structure. Now, it might be very good. But it's 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 very interesting, but I find it a bit concerning at the same time. I'm interested and concerned um, about it um, as well. So 
Uh, yeah, no, but it's great. I, I think the story of the adventure game genre is kind of similar to the story of Revolution, that you know, it rose and then there was a fall and then back rise again. Um, it should. It should grow now. Yeah, just people, <laughs> adventure game genre. People want real things, they want authentic things. And, mm. You know, AI aside, that's, that's what you can get from an adventure game. You know, mm. uh, and and uh, you know, keep, keep it real and, and don't, don't try and be, don't, don't try and force things and, and you know, do, do a real game, and I think there's, there's a successful path there. Yep. And my final question for you before we go to the audience is um, Are you working on anything at the moment yourself? Are you working on any games now yourself? And I know because you're not, I believe you're at Revolution, so this is you, so are you. Uh, well, I, I, I've gone back right to another genre of the, the <laughs> 1980s called Arcade Adventure, which was, um, which was popular back then. So, I mean, I, my first game I ever wrote was called Obsidian, and uh, it was Arcade Adventure, uh, it, similar to Metroidvania now, um, and, uh, yeah, but, but looser in spec, I suppose. So, I, I mean, I've been, for 40 years, I've been trying to write a sequel to that game, so I, I've got to do it. I mean, <laughs> I've started and failed numerous times this, the last 10 years. I'm, I'm over halfway in the game at the moment, I've, I've just got to finish it. And, and then, and then uh, the plan is to go back to uh, do an adventure game. Uh, in the style I've just been talking about. Oh, so maybe that's next year. Well, hopefully. Well, actually, my final, final question then, bring it back to the games that you've released. Uh, what do you think it is about, in particular, the Broken Sword games that have remained so popular <laughs> just 25 years later? So as a developer, is there anything particular you think that is the reason why people go back to those games and still talk about them? That's a good question. I think Broken Sword, it was just... Uh, I mean, everything it did, it did nicely and, and right. I, I think... The, you know, if any, every game should try and innovate one thing, you know, it should try and evolve one thing, and, and maybe that will work, and maybe, maybe it won't. But you've got to do something, you know, any game's got to do something new. And I think what Broken Sword did was, uh, you know, it, it, it came up with really authentic characters. I mean, George and Nico were, were probably what carries that, that, that game now. People love those characters, and they, they want to hear them talking, and, you know, they weren't stereotypical. Mm. Um, Video game characters, um, e even now, you know, I mean, the landscape is more sophisticated now, but I, I think those characters still stand out, you know. I mean, at the time, I mean, if you look at Nico, uh, how, how she is in that game, uh, and her main competitor was, was Lara Croft, you know, um, you know she, she was just um, an amazing character. And I, and I think the look for those characters is what, is what carries the games now, I think. What, yeah. do, you, what do you think? Uh, yeah, good question. So from a gamer's point of view, I think it is that uh, George and Nico in particular, that they're, they're nice people that you want to spend time with them, that because a lot of other protagonists in adventure games, they're either very snarky or you do some really evil things just to you know, move the plot along. Uh, but with George and Nico, well, they're, you know, they're not perfect probably, but it's kind of like they're, yeah, they're just you want to spend time with them. That you, it's, a, it's a joy to see them talk to each other and to other characters. But it's comforting, yeah, you go back and play it and say, I'm going to play the Spain section. Yeah. I just love to be there, you know. I think that's what people do. Yeah, or the, or the Iron sec section in uh, Loch Marne, um, which I know has become infamous. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, pro it's proper island, yeah. Yeah, definitely. But all this, all, everything in one, in one section in the pub, if it's Ireland. But yeah, no, I think uh, it's, it's great, you know, that yourself as well, you're making a game and Revolution are back making games. They, they released Beyond the Steel Sky a couple of years ago as well, which, um, you know, for Apple Arcade and everything, and you're working on the game. Uh, so I think the future, would you say, it's, it's good for adventure games, narrative games? I'd say it's better than it's been for decades. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. So, I mean, anyone out there making adventures, just, just do what you want to do. Believe in your product and, and, and develop it. And, uh, you know, don't care about what anyone else is saying about genres or, or anything. Just, just make your adventure game. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tony. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. And uh, I'm sure everyone else has enjoyed listening to you as well. So, Tony Warner. <laughs>
Jamie's even had a project child <laughs> <laughs> I remember correctly. Um, all sorts of uh, strange underhand things going on. I mean, we should certainly consider it, can't we? But we'd, we'd have to collaborate again on, on that one. <laughs> Hey, uh, since you're so long in the genre, what do you consider adventure games today? Because uh, you test uh, a lot <laughs> around how everyone can uh, tag adventure to the game today, and uh, what do you personally consider an adventure game today? Uh, for me, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm so encouraged by what Dave is doing uh, with, with his very pure and simple authentic adventures, I mean, that, that to me is where, because those games are doing well and, and, and people are writing them, then uh, I mean, that, for me, that is what an adventure game is. It, it's, it's, it's the pure point and click, um, 2D pixels, um, lots of dialogue, lots of characters, nothing, nothing too fancy, nothing, nothing wasted in superfluous genre stuff. So, I mean, basically, that, that, you know, Hobbs Barrow is, is a perfect example of, of the genre and what, what people should be doing. How do you see like Twitch doing? Because there's a, I think there's always a concern from adventure game makers like when people uh, stream the game on Twitch or YouTube, um, there's certain amount of players they won't buy this game anymore. Why would they buy it? Because they already know the story. Oh, I see. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess it goes it goes to way. I mean, the fact that they've seen it. I mean, discover the main problem these days is discovery. So I mean, you, you have to take it. Like, I mean, okay, Twitch. If you sit and watch someone play the whole thing through, then I guess, I guess it's bolted for you. But then you would never, perhaps, heard about it anyway. So you, you might, you might see one game being played on Twitch, and you decide to buy the other ones in the series, or, or um, some, some other game that's the same genre. So I mean, you, you, you can't. Can't wish these things away, so you just have to embrace them. I mean, I see it as a good thing. And I mean, if you go on, if you go on YouTube now, there are people making videos about Broken Sword. I mean, it, it's all good, really. Yeah, it has to be, because otherwise you're in a void and no one knows the game even exists. Because uh, you know, you're not gonna. It's not like you're gonna put big adverts in the, in the magazines anymore, like it was like it was in the 80s and 90s. I mean, how do people know about your game? Twitch is as good a way as any. I mean, I, I take your point, but what can you do? You, you know, it's very hard to make replayability in, in an adventure game. So, yeah, it, it's it's just it is what it is. So, what, what do you see to say? What do you say to a publisher if they say, "Oh, this game is not replayable"? Uh, I would say you go to a different publisher. <laughs> <laughs> go, 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 go and talk today. <laughs> Thanks. I think that's a good, great answer. <laughs> Thank you for the kind words, by the way. Um, uh, something you said uh, during the interview really struck me is how, um, how around 2000, you noted that uh, Sierra was gone, LucasArts was practically gone, but you were determined to stick around. And um, some lucky things happen, like with Apple and stuff. But up until that point, I'm just curious, like what what conscious decisions you made to just because what's impressive, what I've always been impressed by with Revolution is that like you're one of the only like golden age adventure companies that's still around, and it seemed you did anything in your power to make that happen and to just stick around like no matter what. So I'm just curious, like during that period, you know, the early 2000s, you know, um, what like conscious choices you made, if any, that like you made just to just to stay around and stay in business. We we just we just didn't die. You know, we just, <laughs> we just, we just I mean, we, we were always some people. I, I mean, a, a lot of businesses they, they they kind of blow them up because they they don't see the changes and they and they, and they so they, they just plow on and then they then they blow up in a big way. I mean, we, we always managed to decline, so we we. We got smaller and smaller and smaller until there was almost nothing left, but we never blew it up, you know. So we, we could exist almost as a shell and wait for things to um, improve. You know, we could kind of hibernate the company 
until until something happened, um, and, and eventually it did. I mean, something always happens, right? If you, if you really believe, and, and you'll always be okay in the end. Something always happens, and, and it did. So we, we just carefully managed where we were at any given time. Oh yeah, <laughs> you've, got, you've got to do that. It's pretty well known. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that like new games or new consoles like the Steam have had an effect, the Steam Deck should I say, have had an effect on adventure games? Uh, I don't think I don't think it's bad effects. I mean, I, I I like Steam Deck. I think it's I, I think mobile is great for adventures. So um, no, I think Steam Steam Deck is a good thing. I mean, it's well worth making making any game work work nicely on it. I mean, it's it's uh, you know mo mobile is good for adventure. Um, yeah, Steam Deck is a, is a is a pretty good thing. What would you say to all the people that say that uh, Mark, um, as, uh, uh, as as you were saying, uh, has stereotypical depiction of Irish folks? <laughs> Over to my Irish <laughs> uh, I actually asked that question before, you know, was I offended uh, by the portrayal of Irish people in Loch Marn? And my reaction was, no, I found it hilarious. <laughs> and, and a lot of it was accurate. Uh, <laughs> you had all the stereotypes in one section that said, in the pub, you had uh, the priest, you had the guy playing the fiddle, you had the publican, and, you know, families there as well. Um, you know, what, what I've always said, if you are going to kind of you know, kind of make fun about people about Ireland. Uh, make sure you're funny about it. Make sure, <laughs> because Saturday Night Live, they poke fun at Ireland, and some Irish people thought, oh, they're racist and stereotypical. My problem with them was that they're not funny. <laughs> you, you're just mentioning potatoes isn't enough to be funny. <laughs> but I also, with Broken Sword, I also felt that it came from a place like not mocking, not mean-spirited. It came from, and I say this, I think, with all the, you know, kind of stereotypes or all the nationalities, it's not poking fun at, in a stereotypical or mean-spirited way, but kind of like a charming way and kind of, you know, like kind of nearly inclusive. And also kind of George Stobart remains kind of the butt of the jokes. Um, and again, in a charming way, because he goes to Ireland, he goes to the publicans, and the first thing he says is, top of the morning to you, in his American accent. And the publican says, we don't say that here in Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in Syria, when he speaks to the, the boy, and he says, Something like, you speak English? And the boy said, yes, a lot better than you by the sounds of it. <laughs> so it's kind of like not really making fun of the cultures, but kind of bringing like the interactions that people might have um, as well. But I don't know how you feel, Tony. Well, we, we were never scared of, 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 of dealing with different, different nationalities and stuff like that, but we, we always did it in an intelligent way. So we, mm. we, 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 we pushed it in, a, in, a, in, in quite a clever way. And the, the joke, you know, it was done because it was a joke. Usually the joke is back on Georgia, as you say. So um, we never we never got into trouble for it. I mean, yeah, that's good. <laughs> no one never no one ever said we're going to get you. Know, we're going to cancel you for that. And it, it, never, it never happened. Surprisingly, maybe, but um, we we handled it sensitively. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I do have another question. So, um, Antonio, you mentioned that there's uh, always a certain nostalgia in adventure games, and uh, I think it's this also uh, steers this genre towards maybe more experienced players. So, to make your next adventure game, would you do any conscious design decision that maybe engage newer or younger players? Uh, I, I mean, the thing about adventures is they're generally quite easy to play, so um, I mean, I think I think the design has to be done so that they're easy at the start, and you know, you funnel people in from a from a very narrow start point. You know, the, the, the typical diamond sort of shape design. So I think I mean they're, they're typically they're very simple UI. So as long as you get people moving quickly in the game, then uh, I, I don't think it's it's going to be a problem as such. 
Sorry, was that the question? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I think the main thing with, with any games now is is these people are not going to tolerate being stuck, uh, or, mm. or or you know if 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 you think this is a bit difficult, I'm stuck, I'm going to close this game and come back to it later, then I think you've probably lost them and they won't they won't ever come back to it. So yeah, I mean they've got to be they've got I think. A modern adventure's got to be easier than some of the some of the games from the past. They used to they used to be like uh, a match thing about making them as difficult as possible and, and get people stuck. And you, you know, you, you buy you you buy your game uh, and, and you, you think this, this is my entertainment for two months and, and I, I don't mind being stuck for a week on a puzzle or something. Uh, people won't tolerate that now. So I think a modern a modern game needs to be pretty snappy. You know, it's got to be easy to start, get people into it, make them feel good about, about playing it, and then, uh, you know, that, that's, that's the way I would think. Go with an idol, yeah. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> okay, uh, hello. Um, I want to share a, share a short story and ask questions about it. Um, okay. I, I went to Barcelona and, and went to the monastery to see the Moreneta just because of the game, because I, I love the location in the game. Uh, um, and and I, I want to know how deep was the research you did of, of that location specifically, and if, the, if you know about other fans who did that kind of things in the past, uh, about your games or your characters or, or some story uh, similar to that. Charles, uh, <laughs> how, how, how did, you, did, you, did you research that monastery? <laughs> the Spanish one. The Spanish one. Yeah, the monastery in the mountain. I mean, it's a real place, isn't it? It's a real place. Yeah, yeah it's, it's actually named after my uncle, um, Alec de Vasconcelos. We're talking about a breakfast for one. Sorry? We're talking in Broken Sword. Broken Sword. Oh, Broken Sword. The, 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 the <laughs> monastery in the mountains. In Barcelona. The, the Moreneta. The, the Virgin. Oh. Up in the mountains. Yeah. Oh. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's, it's a real place. I mean, it's it's a real, I have the photos there. I was yeah, looking yeah. for the secret entrance, but I, I was yeah. not able to so find it. Mean, um, we, 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 we typically look for real things and then spin them, you know, make it slightly better than, than, than real life, so... Um. So it was based on Montserrat? Yeah, Montserrat. Oh yes, yeah, 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 yeah of course. So, so we, 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 I mean, Montserrat's wonderful, it's got an incredible history. So it was very much trying to build in some of the elements of Montserrat. And of course, if you go to Montserrat, you can walk and they've got the little chapel. And, sorry, I'm... So sorry, I put you in my process of one. Um, yeah, so so what what we always try and do is integrate as much of the legitimate history in as makes sense. Um, but yeah, they're, they're always you know they're always very thoroughly researched. Um. Also, we've had some uh, people who played the earlier games. Yeah. Um, they did it, you know, parlors and places where we had you know, in, in the game. And some of them get married there, and some of them call their children, you know, uh, the names of characters in the game. So it's, yeah, it's had that kind of history. I think if you should read, uh, or not, not me, but, but, but uh, Revolution or, or, or anyone making a game uh, which has real locations, you probably want to really do it. People, people seem to be into that, you know. Um, they really do. I mean, I think some of the broke sort of one locations in Paris are not, are not that real. You know, there isn't a real that the cafe is it, it's 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 the sort of thing you see but it's not an actual place. And I think I think it's a shame <laughs> because people are always looking for it. So I, I think if we remake that, if we if we were making a a, a scene in the French cafe, I think we'd 
pick a real one now, so we can go there. Uh, and the other thing about revolution is um, the, the, it's an absolute genius move was to put the, the convenient sign in, on the shambles of the office and, and people, yeah, I think so. the, the fans just go there to have a picture taken underneath the, the company logo. I mean, it's a brilliant move. Uh, and we see that, we see that all the time on Facebook and stuff. So, um, yeah, real locations, it, it, it really works. Did Dave have a question? Hi, yeah. <laughs> Dave again. <laughs> I should say, uh, my company was outside my apartment window. I never thought. <laughs> <laughs> I guess my question is about, uh, specifically about the writing. Because um, the one thing I've always found interesting about uh, George, especially um, in all the games, is how consistent he is and how long we've known him, but also how little we still know about him. We know he's like a, he's like a, a kind of a patent attorney but we don't know a lot about his history, we don't know a lot about him, but yet he remains so incredibly engaging at the same time. And I'm just wondering, like, when you sit down, I don't know if you personally write the dialogue, but when you have meetings about, okay, where, what you're going to do with George, what is he going to do, what is he going to say, I'm just wondering if there's any, like, particular, you know, bedrocks or, like, or, um, or specific things about George that you always, like, kind of, um, uh, you always kind of lean on. Is there anything, like, Right, George. Like, what? Uh, I guess what I'm saying is, is like, what goes through your head when you sit down to write George? Because he's managed to stay so consistent all this time. Yeah, I mean, he's been written by different people, um, uh, and I guess there's so much of George that uh, it, it, it's kind of you, you can kind of, I mean, any given line you can see is that is that George-like. I mean, I, I can read a line and say, I, I can feel if it's a George-like line, you know. Uh, and, it, and it's true. There's a lot of mystery to him. I mean, we don't. There was a big argument recently as to where which which um, state he comes from. In the state. And I think there's still a debate about it whether or not we've actually said that he comes from this place. And because you know it's California or it's Idaho, and there's actually a debate about that. And we don't have it written down which one it is. So you know we we, all, we often go and ask the fan base uh, that kind of, that kind of question because they know more than we do. Um, <laughs> But I think I think the main thing is that there's so much George that that uh, you know you, you can tell if this is his kind of thing, and, and also um, you know Rolf Saxon who always voices him. He, I mean he brings those those lines to, to life, and uh, and in a way he kind of he kind of if if they're wrong then then Rolf will say anyway he'll say that and George will say that. And that's happened a lot as well. So. There's, there's often a lot of um, very, very bad last-minute editing going on in the studio, which you really also rely on the voice actor. Kind of <laughs> I mean, Rolf, Rolf, in, in a sense, is George in many ways. So, yeah, I mean, he's the final. He's like the, the final cut of, the, of one of George's lines. So, which of the Nikos would you say is the uh, is the iconic <laughs> Nico? Uh, they're, they're all quite good. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the, I guess the first one. But, but no, again, no, no one's ever said we don't like this, the second mm -hmm. nickel or the third yeah. one. Or, you know, she seemed to be able to change. I mean, George never could. There could never be another George. Mm -hmm. But it, it seems we can change Nico if we have to, and, and it's not detrimental. Why do you think that is? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think probably because. I mean, she's such a strong character. I think as long as she's talking in, in quite a strong French accent, then I think it's good enough. <laughs> I mean, it sounds sound like a bad answer, but uh, it, it seems to work. I know you're, you're a huge fan of um, Dan Brown's work. Um, do you feel that maybe it was always inspired by the image? <laughs> do you mean like the way around? The other way around. I think I think we, I think I would not be surprised if, if Dan Brown played Brown's sword. Yeah. <laughs> I mean it's a good book. Very badly edited. <laughs> That's what I'd say. Um, you read the Winchick Code? I have, yeah. Do you like it? Yeah, like, like I said, it's a good read, page turner. Yeah. Uh, might need another draft or two. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think they just thought, some publishers just thought, 
oh, it's the latest Dan Brown, just, just get it out. And, and it was a, a genius page turner, and um, they just forgot to edit it. And, uh, and if they had it, it would have been, it would have been spectacular. But um, uh, it's a great, great story. But yeah, I think, I think the root of it is Broken Sword. Uh, and Broken Sword goes back to other things, Inverto Echo and stuff like that, um, way back. And I, I don't think Dan Brown read that stuff. Um, I think he, he, he was a combination of, um, well, mostly Google, Wikipedia, yeah. <laughs> um, and maybe maybe Uh Yeah, I think we have to finish. One last thing I wanted to mention is that uh, that I completely forgot to mention is that Tony also released a book that we just touched the surface. But Tony really went into detail behind the scenes, and it's a fascinating read. Um, it's called Revolution: The Quest for Game Development Greatness. Think. Yeah. Uh, so um, if you can get some, happy, I don't know if they're available still, but <laughs> uh, there's a few. Yeah. I don't. I don't like talking about it. But, you know. <laughs> I, know, I know. I know you don't. <laughs> and I've not read it. I'm told it's a good book. Yeah. Take them. Uh, yeah. Where do we get them? Gumtree. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, look on my Twitter. It's got a. It's got a link. So at Tony Warner on Twitter, we have a link to the book. Kind of like you know, like George Stobart going in deeper into the mystery. <laughs> uh, it's a good archive, especially an archive of the, 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 the company's history and the, the story. And the, the, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, we just touched the, today the, mm. the, the super highlights, and there's a lot, a lot of ups and downs in the revolution story. And, and people, people, yeah. I mean, yeah. external forces were always bashing us for 30 years, and um, um, and we weathered it all. And, yeah, you got through. Uh, no, fascinating read anyway. Uh, yeah, so thank you everyone for coming and joining us and thank you for <laughs> So that was my live interview with Tony Warner at Reboot Develop Blue in Dubrovnik. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed that. Um, and I hope you enjoyed the, the cameo appearances from a few people, including Charles Cecil, Noreen Carmody, and, of course, Dave Gilbert, who dropped by. Um, and, yes, it was a coincidence that uh, Tony mentioned uh, the excavation of Hobbs Barrow. He really genuinely did enjoy it. Um, and so he certainly didn't just say that because Dave was there. Um, but uh, but it generally is a great game. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you to Tony for, uh, agreeing to speak to me, for allowing me to tag along with him to Reboot Develop Blue. Um, it was an absolutely fantastic experience and hopefully we, uh, we, we did something good for the genre. We're promoting the genre, making sure that people know that it is worth it to play and make these games and we can continue to ensure that this game lives on and thrives. Uh, that is my hope, at least. Uh, also, thank you to Damir Durovic, the CEO of Reboot, for the invitation. Uh, it, it Reboot Developed Blue, as I'm sure I said in other episodes of the podcast, or I will say uh, in more detail, it was an absolutely fantastic conference. It's, uh, it, it, I felt safe. Everyone, great atmosphere. Uh, everyone, it was a very chilled conference. And uh, extremely well organized, extremely relaxed, and just absolutely fantastic. They really, really looked after everyone there and all the staff at the hotel, everyone. So a huge, huge, huge thank you to Damir and the entire team at Reboot. Um, I would definitely encourage people to check it out, to, uh, to attend if you can afford it, uh, to apply to speak uh, or to just chat with them because they're very approachable. Um, so thank you to Demir and again thank you to every one of you for listening uh, for supporting this podcast and uh, who knows maybe we will be at future conferences again uh, so I also did other interviews at both the Reboot Develop Blue and the WASD conference in London those interviews will be going up every Monday from I believe uh, maybe not next Monday but the Monday after that uh, interviews from those who conferences will be going up so again those were live those were done at the conferences and in coffee shops so there will be some background noise and there will be of course my phone going off uh, every so often so I hope that won't be too annoying 
Um, but uh, some great interviews coming up. Some podcast interviews coming up on Fridays. And of course, I will be back reviewing games with the podcast team, uh, hopefully at least once a month in the next few months as well. So plenty to look forward to yet. So I will stop waffling now. Uh, huge thank you again to everyone uh, listening and to Tony and Amir again. And uh, we shall see what happens in the future. So take care, everyone. And goodbye. <laughs>the adventure games podcast then please subscribe rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts please leave a review on itunes if you can as every review helps and reviews will help get the word out especially for adventure game developers who appear on the podcast now you can also follow me on social media you can follow me on twitter at Advent Game Pod. You can follow me on Facebook at Adventure Games Podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram at Adventure Games Podcast as well. And we're also on Discord at Adventure Games Podcast. So if you are a Adventure Game developer or Adventure Game player, you can follow us there. So again, please feel free to retweet and share podcast episodes and the podcast to people who you believe may enjoy it and you can also find more information about the podcast on www.adventuregamespodcast.com so until next time thank you